Um, well, I was reading about the discipleship, which we're going to talk about um, today, this morning. And I was reading this book by uh, a theologian, Kevin Van Hooser, and he, it was specifically about what is a pastor's job and discipleship. And he was saying, You're, you are the theologian that people know, and you, your job is to stand up and not just disciple people into what Jesus has for them, but to clarify for them the way the culture is discipling them and to pull them out of that as much as possible. Does that make sense? You and I live in the context of a world that is constantly trying to form us into a particular identity that is not godly because Jesus doesn't rule over the culture absolutely and totally. It doesn't work that way. The kingdom of this world is acting on us. And it's part, part of my job is to stand up and to call that out in us and be reminded of who has our heart centrally, who has our identity centrally, who has our loyalty centrally. Um, so I, that was kind of running through my mind, but I was also kind of loosely sort of following, following the news this summer. And um, I, I felt like I wanted to come back and have us pray together that, that Jesus would have the sole claim on us as our primary identity marker and not whatever other part groups that we are a part of. Um, it is important for us to be clear that we are first and foremost the people of God and not residents of Swannanoa, not Americans, not on and on and on. We are primarily and first and foremost forever the people of God. And that's really important to, to hold that line and to, to examine our thoughts in that, in that lens. And I was... Um, I've been troubled uh, by the violence and shootings that I've read about uh, this summer and you know, for years now we clearly have a problem of some kind in this country. And this growing uh, element of those shootings that is filled with a sort of racial and ethnic animosity and fear based around it you, you have these people writing these insane screeds about how all those people from over there are invading here and they want to do something about it. And a troubling, a troubling number of times, Jesus' language has been used in those. And, and you know, not too long ago, one of these shootings was perpetrated by the son of an elder of a Presbyterian church. You know, his church is horrified by what he's done, does not teach what he's believed. But, I mean, there you have it. And what I believe has, has happened is that there's been a conflation of identities, and people have created this pseudo-religion that blends Americanism, whiteness, with following Jesus. And that is frankly not the gospel. It is anti-gospel. A central element of the New Testament is the question of 
Who is allowed to follow Jesus? Do you have to become part of this ethnic racial group, the Jewish people? And the answer was very loudly and clearly, no. The central identity marker and maker is Jesus and Jesus alone. And I'm not sitting here saying, like, I'm strongly suspicious that we have a bunch of violent racists in our church. I, I would say we probably don't. I would hope that we don't. But I would say that this kind of um, racial fear and racial self-interest has been growing louder and louder for, you know, probably the past three years or so. And the church cannot be silent about that and just assume, well, our people will figure it out. No, that is not our job. Our job is to very clearly say that Jesus Christ is our sole Lord and King. And, I, and I, I have to sort of lay more of my cards on the table. My last name is Rodriguez. You may have noticed. Now, I'm pretty clearly white. I'm a white guy. I know that. I get more tan, I promise. But um, I know plenty of immigrants. They are related to me. They are my family. And they came, they came here legally, if you're wondering. But um, the question of how people arrive in our communities, whether legally or illegally, is secondary to me. First and foremost, people from other countries, people of other, of other races, they are people who are made in the image of God, whom Jesus loves, and whom I am called to love. That is what is most important to me about anybody with a last name like mine, people of a darker skin color than mine. And we need to be very clear on that. And I, I, if you are afraid of, of lots of brown people coming into our church, because that, a lot of people are afraid of people who are different than them. It's normal. It's a normal human thing. I'm praying like every day that God would send us people who struggle to speak English. I, I, that is why I'm actively praying for. I am praying that more men and women with last names like mine would end up as elders and deacons in our church. Because that community is right up the road from us. And I want this whole valley to be transformed by the kingdom of Jesus. So maybe everybody's like nodding, amen, we feel good about this. That's great. My, uh, my challenge to you, my suggestion to you is, there are people that you know who are not cool with people like that. They don't want to get too close. They don't want those people to come and be a part of our people. And maybe they're not writing any violent, racist, nonsense things. But that thing starts in your heart. And so what I want to invite us to be is, one, a people of prayer. That we would specifically pray against that thing in our own hearts and in the hearts of our community. And that we would be a people of active hospitality. Because when Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another, 
He was not talking about the way that you love people just like you. Because that is a kind of love that the world completely understands and is on board with. But when you and I love people who are different than us, who make us uncomfortable, who eat different foods that smell differently than us, who speak different languages than us, then the world sits up and says, now wait a second, what is this? Because the world thinks that they have a lock on identity and diversity and stuff like that. We're not talking about political diversity and acceptance. We're talking about Christian love. And that is markedly different than anything else on offer. We need to be that kind of people. Because that rightly reflects and images the God who would empty himself of power and authority and become a servant of all. That is who we worship. That is our king. That is our primary place of loyalty. Not any other flag or creed or kingdom. Jesus is our king. And he is better than any other kingdom. So I want to pray right now. Maybe you've been thinking about people as I've been saying this. Those folks down the road who are different than you. Or that guy down the road who you know, you know, loves his Confederate flags and writes some and says some iffy kind of stuff over there. Maybe you've been looking at yourself. I want us to pray for whoever's been popping up on your mind. Those people are the people that God is calling you to pray for now and tomorrow and the day after. That our, our people would be transformed by the kingdom. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we confess to you that our inclination is to find those who are just like us and to be entirely comfortable hanging out with them and just them at our table. We confess to you that we know we live in a culture that either forms us to fear people different from us or tempts us to use people different than us as political leverage. And neither one of those things are what you want. But we are often weak and susceptible. And Father, we are sorry for the ways that we have in our own hearts failed to properly reflect your image into the world. We ask that you would make our hearts soft towards you, that you would firm up our loyalties to you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to see clearly the line between the ways of Jesus and the ways of this world. May our hearts be soft and so won over by you that we love the way that you've called us to love. Father, we pray that for the sake of our country, for the sake of this state, for the sake of this valley,
that you would multiply in all your people in this church and all your churches a willingness to love expansively and with hospitality that our tables would be tables that reflect the table of the Lord Jesus. You are the friend that we aim to be like, Father. Help us to replicate your friendship. Father, cloak us in a spirit of humility and of repentance and help us, O Lord, to befriend those who we've ignored, to speak a word of truth to our friends who we know are veering off into dark places. May the community of your church in this valley reflect your brilliant creativity and boundless faithfulness that is sufficient to bind into one family every nation and tribe and tongue. We trust that you will surely do this, Lord Jesus. Amen. This morning we are going to look at two different passages, and it is related to what I just talked about to some degree. I hope you'll see the connection there. We'll be in Luke 6, starting at verse 39, and then we'll be in Romans 12. The passages will be on the screen, um, and then the screen will disappear. But for now, it'll be up there. Uh, if you need a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere around you. Um, Feel free to use one of those that are in the pews. Luke 6, starting at verse 39. He, Jesus, also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of, the abundant, out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone comes to me and hears my words and does them. I'll show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock, When a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have all the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We pray that our ears would be open to it, that our hearts would be soft, that you would pierce us to the core, and that, Jesus, you would transform us, that you would make us people who do good because we have been given good. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Like I said, um, I grew up in the church, by and large. I grew up in different streams of the church. Um, uh, My family... I was born into an Episcopal family, but it was a weird Episcopal church that my parents had helped start. It was like this uh, conservative, charismatic Episcopal church, which is a very strange blend. I dare you to find another one. Um, I I was baptized in that church and and confirmed in that church when I was pretty young. Uh, And then I, I also kind of just left that whole Book of Common Prayer world when I was older in my family, when I was in middle school, and we were in just sort of this broadly non-denominational charismatic church. And, uh, and now here I am, a Presbyterian, obviously. Um, <clears throat> and uh, in my experience, there are two kind of uh, approaches, and I would say errors in spiritual formation, assumptions that people have that I've seen in both streams of the church that I've been in. Uh, For my charismatic family, for my charismatic brothers and sisters, uh, oftentimes the emphasis on being changed 
And that's really what these passages are talking about, being changed uh, to more fully reflect the image of God is sort of relying upon an ecstatic event happening, this ecstatic experience. Now, it doesn't literally have to be a light appearing in the room and glowing and pulsing with energy and like shooting you with you know, sunbeams of energy. But if that could happen, that would be great. I mean, I, I definitely remember spending a great deal of time asking God to do just that because I was just sort of sick of myself and wanted that to happen inside of me. I didn't necessarily need the light to appear, but I wanted the light to break on my heart for this incredible experience to happen, and then I'd be totally different. Um, you know, I'd look at stories like Saul on the road to Damascus and just say, like, I just want, like, the already Christian version of that. You know, Saul was not a Christian. He meets Jesus on the road. He's blinded by the light, and then he becomes a Christian. Well, I'm already a Christian. I just want that kind of experience to just come, hit me, and then I'm, you know, just better. I just want to be better. Never happened. I felt like uh, maybe there was something wrong with me, that I was so sinful in some way that I was sort of, stiff-arming Jesus, like keeping him away so that I was untouchable to him. Uh, It's profoundly discouraging. And I just didn't understand how I get from here to being transformed more into the image and likeness of Christ. Uh, Obviously, I'm I'm not in that world anymore. I'm in the more Presbyterian world. Uh, Now, EPC Presbyterians are odd birds, granted. Um, But still... My experience in this Presbyterian stream that I'm in is the the emphasis is quite different. Learn more stuff. Go to all the Bible studies. Acquire all the information. And once you have acquired the information, you will be better. This will make you a better person. Just, like, read a lot. Here's the problem. I already read a lot, okay? I'm willing to put my stacks up against your stacks. Okay, maybe there's some people who beat me and that would annoy me, but let me just pretend that you're not in here. I I bet I read more than just about anybody in here. And I was already reading like all the theology and all the studies and, and whatever. And I'm still just not quite getting it. I'm still frustrated with myself. I still feel like the fruit that Jesus talks about, I still see plenty of bad fruit. How many more books do I have to read before I learn enough things to be better? Just one. Just one more. I think he's saying the Bible. That's, and I think that's a great point, and we're going to come back to that. But the emphasis for us, I think, in a lot of this stream is know a lot more things in your head. Pass, be able to pass more Bible quizzes, and you'll be better. The problem, problem there is that it can't just be that having theological content, knowing enough Bible facts, is the key to transformation. Because James is quite clear that the devil is quite a good theologian. But the devil actually knows the identity of God, knows the correct properties about him. And he's still the devil, right? 
Something has not clicked over for the devil. And that, that always scared me. Because to be honest, I feel like I could be the devil. I feel like I could know a lot about God. And still there's not quite something right inside of me. And I have this, these competing ways of hoping for transformation. Either that God would step in and do something miraculous or that I would learn enough things and then I would just be changed and it's not happening. And what is wrong with me? And I think actually Scripture frees us with, with some good news. And that's that this thing takes a long time. I, I, I have lived under the burden of instantaneous transformation that never happens for a long time in my life. And if you listen to the images that Jesus uses for talking about this process, if you really think about them, they are things that take a long time. Fruit does not just pop out of the ground. If it did, we'd all be awesome gardeners because we would bury our seeds and get big harvest tomorrow. But that's not how fruit comes, is it? There's a long process. It's a, it's a process so long that I, I look at my father-in-law, who's a farmer, and I am terrified for him. That guy puts stuff in the ground like things this big. He puts things in the ground and six months later hopes that, that there's things above the ground. That's crazy to me. Growing takes a long time. And this other image that, that Jesus used, requiring digging down deep beneath the surface to the rocky Solid foundation that speaks to a long, unseen work that you just trust is working upon you. Paul's, Paul's language is of this constant renewing process. He says, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The constant renewal of your mind is what changes you. And I think both Jesus and Paul have in mind this same long process. And here is, the, I think, the real flaw in both of these two streams that I've grown up in, and I would say many of us have grown up, learn more or experience more. Everything tends to get boiled down to what is inside of you. It tends to be like, I hope I know enough. I hope I feel enough. I hope I know the right thing. I hope I experience the right thing. But how do Jesus and Paul speak of the work of formation and discipleship, but things that actually flow outside of you? Jesus' focus, the emphasis in his passage, which I find most troubling, is that you know that this is working by you learning to actually obey Jesus. What Jesus says very clearly that he wants you to do, what he wants for you, is that he wants to change your life to be like his. 
That long list of things that we read in, in Romans 12, that long list of do this, behave this way that, that Paul is giving for us. If you go back and read it, Paul is describing what our lives should be like and whose life does that look like but Jesus's. Think about it. Look, look at what he says in, in Romans 12. Well, don't look. We move the screen. Just listen. Or look in your Bible. That's allowed to. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. All of these things are things that describe Jesus. And if you'll notice, Paul is not saying, feel more things inside of you. Know a longer list of facts. He's describing a way of being in the world, of acting in the world. So Jesus is not coming primarily to do either one of these things, give you better experiences or fill you with more knowledge. Although both of those things are good and important, Jesus is actually coming to transform your life. It becomes all too easy in either one of these two mistaken streams to sit in a room by yourself and saying, I'm doing great. I'm feeling things. I'm learning things. And then you go outside the door and, you know, you hate your enemies and you curse those who curse you and bless those who bless you, just like Jesus tells you not to do. But it feels good because you think you're checking off items on the list. But what God actually wants us to do in forming us as disciples is to transform our lives so that we would share in the very life of God himself. That is the revolutionary message of the gospel, is that you get to, because of the work of Jesus, participate and share in the divine life. Paul describes it in Colossians 1, as the thing that's been hidden for ages and ages, for generations and generations, you've seen it. You've gotten the good news. Christ in you, hope of glory. That is not a piece of information that you are meant to learn and say, that's really cool, or an experience that you're meant to have and say, that's really cool. That is meant to be an actual way of life in you and in me, Christ in us, hope of glory, because you are living in a kind of life that Jesus will call eternal life. Jesus says when you trust in him, you get an eternal kind and quality of life. That doesn't mean when you die, then you just kind of keep living forever. That is part of eternal life. What he's saying is when you trust in him, when you trust in the work of Jesus, you get a kind and quality of life that now is rooted in the eternal divinity of God. And it is unconquerable and unquenchable so that when you die, of course you keep living because you're filled with the life of God himself. It is eternal. And not just when you die. It is eternal now. And that transforms us. So then, how does this happen? <laughs> if you're like me, that's the question. 
Okay, but how? I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm interested. Now, what do I do? And that, that actually is a good question. What do you do? Not just what do you experience, what do you learn, but what do you do? Jesus uses this image of, of a log being in your brother's eye, and, or in your eye and speck in your brother's eye. And we can just assume if everybody's listening to him that everybody's basically got a log in his eye, is what, is what we're saying. And in Jesus' little parable, there, there is no one in the example that is actually wood-free. Everybody's got something in their eye. And the place to start is to acknowledge that you are somebody who is desperately in need of the help of God. That, that, that is the place to begin. And it is ultimately the place that you begin again and again and again every day, multiple times a day. All, all my striving, all, all my changing, all the transforming, all the renewing that I'm going to be involved in in my life begins with the confession. I am a sinner in need of the abundant grace of God. And the good news is, he has more than enough for you. But he, he is actively involved in your life, plucking out of your eye what you could not do for yourself. And there's more. Because that is only the beginning of this life with God. And one of the, one of the wonderful gifts that we can embrace as modern people is the wonderful truth that we are not the first people to ever be Christians. There's actually been like 2,000 years of Christians. And we are not talking about something that we are discovering. If I, if I ever tell you that, please throw something at me. I don't want to be discovering anything. After 2,000 years, I'm not that smart. Other people have been thinking about this for a long time. Our family... And what we come back to is this rhythm of life with God that involves very simple, steady practices that transform us. And they're kind of the things that you'd expect, like prayer. You don't read spiritual biographies. You don't talk to that you know, really holy person that you've known for a long time who just, you know, you can tell they've been hanging out with Jesus a lot. They just smell like Jesus. You know the kind of people I'm talking about? Not me. Real people. You know what I'm talking about? That just, you can tell, spend a lot of time with Jesus. You can almost certainly hear them tell you, just offhand as they describe their day, how much time they spend praying. I was listening to one pastor talk about this this summer, and he said, uh, if your life with God, if your spiritual life with God is, is entirely observable, in other words, if your whole coming to church, if your whole life with God, pursuing Jesus, comes down to coming to church on Sunday, maybe going to Sunday school, maybe going to small group, and you really don't spend any secret, unobserved time with Jesus, then your spiritual life is likely very shallow, and you are in danger. 
And Jesus actually kind of makes this same point when he says, the foundation of your spiritual life is meant to go deep beneath the surface of the ground rather than just building up on what is observable. The heart of the secret and intimate life with God is prayer. And, and maybe, maybe you're not good at prayer. That's a lot of people for 2,000 years have been in the same boat as you. I, I, I'm not saying that to be transformed in the image of likeness of Christ, you've got to be able to spend two hours in a prayer closet right off the bat. But you do have to pray. It might be two minutes today as opposed to zero yesterday. But a life of slowly training yourself to pray two minutes at a time eventually trains you to be the kind of person that can and does pray for hours at a time. Or at least so I think. Because I'm not there yet. So prayer. Read your Bible. And this is important. Don't just read the Bible, but meditate on the Bible. If you read these people who write their spiritual writings down through history, you, you can often be struck. Yes, there's some people who like read a ton of the Bible and have it just memorized, bang on, which is wonderful. But you can also be struck by the number of people who, who seem to only read a little bit at a time, but mine so deeply that little bit of scripture. They are just drinking depths of life from it that you and I probably often pass over. But we believe that God himself is behind the text, mysteriously, in ways we don't even fully understand. And when you encounter his word, you can encounter him. Now again, we're not tying ourselves down or up to experience because plenty of times, you know, you're, you're reading First Chronicles and it's just names. And there's cool things that people, some, get, some people get out of the names, but man, they're names. And they're weird names and you're not even sure how to say them and you're just trying to knock out a chapter or two of First Chronicles. Dude, that's hard, Okay. I'm not saying it's always a special experience. I'm not always saying like, yes, I am mining the depths of the spiritual life of God. I'm not saying it's always like that. But as, as one, this same pastor in Atlanta said, sometimes I just have to treat scripture like it's a milking cow. The milk is here, come get it. And that's all it is. Sometimes the cow has to be milked and that's all that's, that's there for you that day. But even that... The slow, repetitive process of saying, I don't know what you're going to do with this, Lord. I don't know what you're going to, how you're going to meet me here. But constantly, day by day, day, day by day, you are teaching your heart, I need to come hear what Jesus has to say. So even if you don't think that you are getting content out, the process of being formed under the word changes you and, as Paul says in Romans 12, renews your mind. Paul also speaks of the, in Romans 12, how we're all different. Everybody has different gifts. Prophecy, teaching, exhortation, generosity, those kinds of things. You cannot be formed into the image and likeness of Christ by yourself. Can't. Can't do it. 
Christian life was not designed to work that way. Never has, not for anybody. Now, if you are a solitary missionary off with no spiritual community, I believe God will meet you there. But that's probably no one here. So if you are a Christian around other Christians, you need the people around you. God meant you to work that way. He will form you and transform you that way. Come to worship. This thing that we do every week, you got to come. You got to be here. It's not a law. I'm not saying you better be here. I'm going to come punish you. I'm saying this place, corporately worshiping together, is a speed bump in your week. Yes, some Sundays you'll be very tired and you don't want to come. There are hard things going on in your life. You don't want to come. You are mad at somebody who is here. You don't want to come. Those Sundays, you have to come to church because it is in that slow process of God calling you to be in a place with people who bother you, people who have frustrated you, people who you need to reconcile with. It is in this public worship venue that God grabs his people by the collective face and say, worship me above anything else. I am your one hope. How else does God transform us? The sacraments. You know, we, we don't take communion here every week because our kids need a snack or because I need a snack. The discussion in the early church was, should we have communion twice a day or every day? It was not, should we have it 12 times a year or twice a year or something like that? The, the confession was, God does something at the table by his grace that is unique, and we need it every time we get together, which is hopefully a lot. And we believe in this church, this is not just a symbol, and we're like remembering cognitively that Jesus did something for us, but that by the Holy Spirit, we are feasting on what God has done for us. He is meeting us at the table in a special in singular way, God changes you by that eating. These are all things, all these things I'm describing, these are things we'd all probably say, this is what Christians should do. What I'm pointing out to you, what I'm pointing to, is that these are, are the ways that God changes you. They are the ways that your heart is formed. And I'm telling you that because if you are like me, you may have lost hope. It feels like it's taking so long. I feel like I've learned so many things. I feel like I've had so many experiences, and still here I am. It's taking so long. Surely there must be something more, something else I can do to move this ball further down the field. And what God does with his people is faithfully, Use ordinary means to transform your life bit by bit so that one day you come around a corner and you just realize, I am different. I didn't even realize it was happening, but God has changed me 
If you have grown weary, if you have grown weary of doing good, take heart. What I'm, what I'm telling you is that God has been faithful for all of human history. And God is being faithful to you. And yes, God invites you into these ordinary practices of Christian life. But this is not so that you can reverse engineer holiness. It is so that the God who comes to you and pulls that log out of your eye may with you day by day come alongside of you and walk with you. That is the profound, surprising nature of the Christian life, is that Jesus who says that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, will take you by the hand and over the long stretch of your life lead you into greater and greater appreciation of his own life, which becomes yours. So, brothers and sisters, we pray in hope. We meditate on the word in hope. We, we worship together in hope. We, we fellowship together in hope. We come to the table in hope. And a hope that is not like a, man, I really hope this happens, but a hope that says God will surely complete this work that he's begun in us. And he will be faithful in us to the very end. If you've been trapped in one of these streams of experience or knowledge, both of which are good things, fix your eyes on Jesus. Even though you may feel cold and confused, you are not alone, and he will not fail you. He will rescue you again and again, as surely he rescued that very first time. That is the great good news of the gospel that Jesus surely will win, as he surely already has. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your friendship and your kindness. We thank you that you are the God who divests himself of power, the trapments of royalty, and bends down low to wash the feet of his followers. And we trust that that is your character now and forever. We do need you, Lord Jesus. We are not growing to the place where we can stand on our own two feet. We are growing down into smallness under your care. Father, I pray that you would encourage the people here today who have lost heart, who have been, who've become impatient or have become disgusted with themselves, that they would remember and realize that God will be faithful to them till the very end. And we thank you that you are slowly changing us, giving us access to divine life, making us to be like Jesus. We thank you so much that you are making us to be like Jesus, that as Jesus said, that we will become like the teacher who is teaching us. We trust that you'll do it, God. Help us to trust that you'll do it. I pray, Father, that you would be with us as we are with one another. Encourage those who feel alone. 
I pray, God, that you will send them a friend, be it in this church or another or somewhere else, so that no one in this, who's in this room today would feel like they are an island all to themselves, all alone following you, but would rather feel real arms linked with theirs as they pursue this life. Help us to be faithful to do that with one another, Jesus, so the world may see and may marvel at you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.